Let's study God's Word this morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn back to Acts chapter 2. Last week we studied the first half of Peter's message at Pentecost. Today we're going to look at the second half and we're going to study the people's response when they heard it. As the Holy Spirit led Peter, as the apostles were full in a new way of the Holy Ghost, Peter spoke very specifically to his audience. This wasn't a message that Paul would have preached to the Gentile nations. This was very specific to the Jews because at this point in church history, the gospel message is still to the Jewish nation. And the Gentile nations are going to hear it very soon as the apostles go out and the word spreads after Pentecost. But right now, the heart of the message is still calling the Jewish nation to repentance. And what uh, Peter appeals to here is both in showing them the weakness of what they trusted in and also the strength of trusting in Jesus Christ. Now let's get right into the text because we have a lot to cover this morning. I would encourage you to take some notes just so you can follow along well and so you stay engaged. Let's start in verse 29. Acts 2.29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel, verse 36, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, Peter establishes early on, continuing from what we studied last week, two main truths about King David. First of all, he says that David himself said there's going to be a Messiah, there's going to be a Savior who is coming, and that is Jesus. And second, he says that God's eternal covenant that he made with David was fulfilled in Jesus. Now, it's important as he's talking to the Jewish nation that he's talking about David because David and Abraham, when you look at Jewish history, are, are, are really the ones who are most respected. Abraham was the father of the nation, the one who trusted in God in remarkable ways, 
And David was the strength of the nation. David was the great leader, the great king, the one who had Jerusalem as his city. And his descendant would be the one with the eternal throne. Not only was David a man after God's own heart, but he was a great military leader. He was a king who was strong and prominent. But, but more so than those things, David represented, listen now, the height of Israel's power and blessing. There was no greater time, and still hasn't been, a greater time in Israel's history than when David was on the throne. There will be someday, but not yet. And during this time, Israel's struggling. Rome is occupying the nation. The, the religious leaders are corrupt. They're teaching the wrong thing. They've put Jesus to death. The nation is still scattered throughout the world. There's, there's just everything is going wrong. And then Messiah comes. Jesus comes. God hasn't spoken to the nation for 400 years. And then all of a sudden, Messiah comes and Emmanuel, God with us. But, but the people still didn't get it. And now Jesus is gone. The people have killed him. And, and they're still weak. They're insignificant on the political stage. They've never recovered from the captivities in Babylon and Assyria. And, and now he's saying, remember what it was like. Because you've got to know the context to understand what happened with Jesus. So Israel, think back to David. Think back to how wonderful it was when we were a strong, unified nation with a powerful king who followed after the Lord. When David was king, everything was right. And even though you don't want to talk about it, not only was it right politically and militarily and economically and, and, and socially, what was really right was the fact that we were our most strong spiritually. We followed after the Lord. See, that's implied here in the text. They knew. We followed the Lord. All the idols were torn down. We built a temple Oh, it was a wonderful time in Israel's history. And yet, you didn't get it then. And you don't get it now. And in 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David. And he said, your throne, your kingdom will be eternal. And one of your descendants will be the one who will be the Messiah. And his kingdom will endure forever. And despite David's public failures, he knew that that was the reminder that God's promises are sure God can never go back on his promises. So even though nobody deserves it, including David, God is a God of mercy and he's a God of forgiveness. And at the right time in history, Christ died for the ungodly. And David, it, Peter is drawing toward that. But before he gets to that, look at what he says about David. Because so much of their pride and so much of their identity as a nation was tied up in him. But look at the facts here. He says, this David, who is our great king and our great leader and the one we admire and look up to and respect, he's dead. He's buried. In fact, we don't know where they're standing in Jerusalem, but maybe he even points, maybe even says, look down there in the valley. That's where he's buried. We know where his tomb is. David was a wonderful man, but he's dead. But think about the words that he said to us. He said, there's one who's coming who will be in the Messiah. Look at it in the text. He looked ahead. <coughs> Excuse me. He spoke of the resurrection of Christ, the one who would neither be abandoned to hell nor his flesh would suffer decay. 
this Jesus is the one that God raised up again and we're all witnesses. In other words, Israel, David knew. He knew he wasn't God. He knew he wasn't the Savior. He wasn't the Messiah. He knew he would die. He called somebody else Lord. And he looked forward to Jesus. And he said, there is one who is coming who will take our sins upon himself. And he won't die and rot and decay and go to hell. He will rise again from the dead. And he will be the one who will save. Peter says, now, crowd, think of it. This one is Jesus. The one David talked about is this Jesus whom you just crucified. This is the one that God has exalted. And all of us saw it. And suddenly he's saying, we can see David's grave, but where is Jesus' grave? This was just 50 days ago. This just happened. This is not 50 years ago. This is in their recent memory. And he says, where's Jesus? It was a very public execution. The whole town was in an uproar. Everybody knew about it. And you put him in the grave. And then what happened? He rose again. You don't believe it. But go to the tomb. Where's the body? Why aren't the Romans saying, we have the body? Why aren't the Jewish leaders producing the body? Where is he? He's not there. David's in his tomb. But Jesus isn't because he's alive. And he must, therefore, be God. And now, look at the text. He's in heaven. And he has received, we have received from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who's been poured forth. In other words, that's what's happening now, crowd. Listen, what you just saw, what we talked about two weeks ago, where they were suddenly speaking in foreign languages, and where the Holy Spirit was powerful, and all the city came running and said, what's going on? What's this noise? Tell us what, what this is all about. He said, that's the fulfillment of all of this. Oh, and by the way, you're the one who crucified him. It's a twofold message there. You saw him. You know for certain, Israel, that he's the one but you're also responsible for his death. Now, I don't know about you, but usually when somebody blames me for something, my first reaction is, tell me if I'm wrong here, my first reaction is not to say, you're right. If somebody blames you, what's your first reaction? Uh-uh! Kind of stand sideways because we think that's stronger. Uh-uh! I didn't, I didn't do it. You did it. I, it was because of this and the, the, we, we get very defensive and we kind of make excuses and we come up with something that will, that will kind of deflect the guilt away from us. And we say, it wasn't my responsibility. I didn't do it. Now, Peter's just made a very strong accusation. This Jesus, who David talked about, who's God, who resurrected, who's alive, who's our Savior, you killed him. That's the end of his message. Uh, that's a great, you know, we pastors think about how we close the message. You, you rarely close the message with, you did it. <laughs> Let's pray. But this is the last line. By the way, you killed Jesus. And he stops. Now you would expect that the people would say, kill him. How dare you? Just like they had. When Pilate said, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? And they said, crucify him. 
you would think the apostles at this point who are on tenuous ground, when Peter says, you killed him, they would say, let's kill you. But notice what happens. The text says in verse 37 that the people were pierced to the heart. What a great word that is in the Greek language. It means to pain, to, I wrote this down wrong, to experience pain in the mind sharply, to agitate the mind vehemently, and to invoke sorrow. That's a strong word. When, G, when Peter said this, their minds were agitated, they felt pain and sorrow, and they asked, what do we do? In other words, there's a strong emotional and spiritual reaction to Peter putting the responsibility on mankind. And you know what? That's what truth does, whether we like it or not. There's an old saying that the truth hurts, and it does. You know why? Because truth brings conviction when we're wrong. Wrong about an opinion, wrong about an action, wrong about the Lord. And before we ignore that and blissfully proceed with what we're doing, eventually the truth finds us out because the Lord is relentless in, in pursuing us with the truth. It's not because he's harsh and not because he wants to prove that he's right, even though he is. It's because he loves us and he doesn't want us to continue to live in death. Now, anybody can spin that any way they want and they can twist that however they want. But the reality is that God loves us, God wants to save us, God wants to redeem us, and God wants to pull us out of this mess that we're in. And that's what the people respond to. When they hear that word and their hearts and minds are agitated and upset, not with anger, but with conviction, they say, what do we do? Now imagine the scene. I love Jewish people. I love being around Jewish people. I love being in New York and being around Jewish people because Jewish people are, are, are very straightforward. They're very no-nonsense. They're to the point. They don't understand why we use extra words to explain something. It's bottom line. And I love that because you can just imagine the sound of this. Try to picture this. Really, now, come on, help me. Try to picture what this scene looks like. You, you've got the apostles standing there. You've got a huge crowd, probably three, four, five plus thousand people in this narrow street. And when Peter says this, they're pierced in their heart. And all of a sudden they start yelling and gesturing. Like if you've ever seen uh, the New York Stock Exchange when the opening bell hits, everybody starts yelling. Well, imagine that if they're all Jewish people who are very demonstrative. And they start to yell and gesture and, and speak. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? This is a boisterous scene, and yet there's unity and clarity to the question. They wanted to genuinely know, how do we respond to this truth that's pierced our hearts? Look at what Peter says in the text. He gives them one key word in verse 30. He says, you need to repent. It's the exact same message John the Baptist had brought before Jesus came, and he said, repent. And then Jesus came along, and he said, repent. And now Peter, when the crowd says, what do we do? Says, repent. Repent is a great word. We need to use the word repent more often. 
it not only means to change your mind. We all know that illustration that repentance means you're going in one direction and you realize that that's the wrong direction and you turn and you go 180 in the opposite direction. We've all heard the illustration. Repentance not only means that you turn away and change your mind. It has a second layer to it that we rarely talk about. It means to abhor and hate your past sin. In other words, it's not just covering your bases spiritually. Well, I prayed to receive Christ when I was nine at camp, and it's good, I'm covered, and I'm doing my best, and I'm trying, and, and I try to confess my sin and, and eat my vegetables and brush my teeth and go to church and all that. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning from your sin and hating the direction that you used to be going in. It's hating that sin once had control of your life. It's not wanting to have anything to do with it anymore. And at the same time, there's a positive part of it that we love Christ so much for delivering us from that. That we're so thrilled and so joyful and so full of gratitude that God has rescued us out of that mess and has changed us and transformed us and made us different. And look at the assurance back in the text. When we repent, what happens? Look at it. You get the forgiveness of sins, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you have the promise that this is eternal to anyone who believes. It's all in Christ, and He does it all. What do we do? The crowd yelling and screaming with one voice. What do we do? Tell us. He says, repent. Turn from your sin and hate the sin. And then, second part, he says, you should be baptized. Now, it's important to understand very clearly here that this is not a statement that baptism is necessary for salvation. There's a break between the two phrases. We need to read it as repent dot, 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 and be baptized. Turn from the sin. Have your heart changed. Have that inward transaction that takes place where you acknowledge your personal guilt and the reality of the sentence of sin. Humble your heart before God and receive the gift that He has given to you through Christ that you cannot be saved without a Savior. You cannot be saved on your own. And that leads to faith in Christ as the only Savior. So repent, get your heart right. And then once your heart is right and God has cleansed you and declared you His own, then do the second part of the statement. Once that inward transaction has taken place and is completed, now it's time to tell everybody. Now it's time to take the outward action of willfully and publicly acknowledging, I'm a sinner Christ saved me. I'm delivered. I'm declared His own. I decided that I had to turn from sin and trust in Him. And He gave me the ability to do that and praise His name. I'm saved forever. This is why we don't baptize babies. Because a baby can't say that. A child that's young, that doesn't know what's going on, can't say, I'm an awful sinner and I'm sentenced to death and I need to be redeemed. They don't understand that. It's only when you can understand that, that you can deliver, that, that you can understand the concept of baptism. It doesn't save. Baptism is not a sanctifying process. It's just a statement of eternal commitment. And it's public. And notice from the text, I got a little worked up there, I'm hot now. 
Notice in the text that there's an expectation that this will be immediate. Once you get saved, you should get baptized. Why? Well, for one thing, we tend to fall back into what's easy and familiar instead of staying the course. And we get embarrassed. Oh, I, don't, I, don't. I, I can't tell you how many excuses I've heard in 25 years for people not being baptized. I don't like to be wet in front of people. Have you ever walked through the rain? I, 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 I don't know what to say. I get that one. But you know what? The Lord will help you. I've seen some of the most timid people who would just about collapse if they had to talk in front of a crowd that have stood up and said, the Lord is my Savior. And everyone went, yeah! And they didn't know the struggle that was going on to, to stand up and do that, and yet they did it. I've never had somebody pass out while I'm baptizing them. I have a clean record on that. I've had some people pass out at weddings. That's always fun. But never once in 25 years, and I've never heard it happen to a pastor, has somebody been giving a testimony like, because you know what? When you stand for the Lord, the Lord gives you the strength, and he gives you the words, and you say, he's redeeming me. The enemy is always tempting us to fall back. But he says, once you repent, you should tell everybody. Once you repent, you should stand up and say, I love the Lord. Not down the road, not in 20 years, not in secret. This is a public ordinance of the church. And if you haven't been baptized yet, I'm going to offend you right now. You better do it soon. And if we need to have a baptism service in the pool over there, we'll do it. We need to go out in a cold lake, we'll do it. Want to go to Lake Michigan in November? I'll get in there with you. I'll dunk my head underwater and get wet first so you're not the only one suffering. I'll baptize you anytime you want. But don't wait another 20 years. Don't wait another 20 months. If you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, get baptized. Now, apparently, the crowd is still asking questions about this, and there's still some hesitation. So here's why I'm going to focus the rest of our study. Look at verse 40. The Spirit tells us in verse 40 that Peter used many other words, solemnly testifying and continuing to exhort them. Now I want to give you three main thoughts this morning about the gospel and three main thoughts about talking about the gospel. Number one, there is a soberness to the message of the gospel. Now that's hard to hear. And one thing I've observed in going to conferences and, and reading books and studying churches and talking to pastors over the last quarter of a century, I can't believe I've been doing this this long, a quarter of a century, is that one of the reasons why the church has shied away from preaching the whole counsel of God and one of the reasons why the church has now adapted business strategies and the philosophy of entertainment and the philosophy of relevance, listen now, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why that's happened is because of Acts 2.40. Now, it looks like just an innocuous verse. doesn't look like it's going to cause any trouble. doesn't look like that verse would completely alter the philosophy of the postmodern church, but it has. You know why? Because we're too concerned that if we bring a solemn message and we talk about the spiritual reality of people's lives, 
that we will lose them because they'll be turned off. Let me restate that. If the message is biblical and the message is solemn that man is a sinner and needs a savior and Christ is the only way. If we say that, we're worried as Christians, and believe me, I've talked to pastors about this and read many articles, we're worried that if we say that, nobody will come. And there's really no other way to explain the turn that Christianity's taken. And you know what? It makes sense. Because society is more emotionally fragile and full of self-pity than it's ever been. But the fact is, by adapting to that, it's caused us to diminish the gospel. Now, this does not mean on the other side, you're still with me, right? This does not mean on the other side that we're supposed to be harsh and judgmental and critical because there's just as a detrimental effect of doing that as there is a theological softness. But what do we need to understand? We need to understand that the truth is direct and the word of God can be sharp when sin is confronted. Now we have to get that. And if we're scared of that, or we're worried that our churches will not be big enough and popular enough if we say that, or worse, if we gravitate away from it because it means, uh uh-oh, that I'm going to have to change then we are not representing the gospel the way the apostles did in Acts 2. And Jesus commissioned us in Acts 1 to speak it that way. You get the point, right? If we're scared of how people react when we speak truth, then we're either not going to speak truth or we are by nature, using the word of God, going to alienate some people that don't like it. It's, it's the two choices. Those are the only two choices. I don't know about you, but I'd much rather be true to the word of God and risk alienating people than soften it. Because softening it is not going to convince anybody. In the Bible, there's no greater example of collective fulfillment of the Great Commission than right here in Acts 2. So if we want to be a biblical church that God blesses, then we better pay attention to this passage because it is better than any church method, any strategy, any philosophy that's out there that's filling conferences and selling books. And I know you may be sick of me talking about this, and I hope it's the last time I have to talk about it in this series. And you maybe think I'm being too critical. That's not my intent. My intention is to let you know and remind myself that the situation is very critical in our world. And Christianity is slow to realize it, although I have some hope that it's starting to happen. And I believe we're going to see a a weariness with the trend that we've been on the last 20 years. And I think it's going to start to pull back into biblical Christianity. But here's the thing, church. We can't wait for that trend to happen. We have to be with other churches out at the forefront of that. Not so we say, look at us. We figured out the trend. Uh Uh-uh, no, don't ever think that. That's not the intent. The intent is, what does the word of God say? We're going to follow that. And if the word of God says to speak truth, then we're going to speak truth. We're not going to be nasty about it, not going to be critical, not going to be judgmental. We're also not going to shy away from it. And that's hard. There is a soberness to the message. It It is solemn to say to people, sin will drive you to hell. 
But it's also wonderful to say, but God's grace and mercy will deliver you forever. And that's the second part of verse 40. There's a testimony to the message of the gospel. There's a testimony. When we talk about the gospel, what's most convincing is the effect that it's had personally on our lives. Without it having changed your life and my life, it's just a bunch of words. If I say Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again to deliver me and save me forever, and that doesn't show in any way in my life, that's just words. There has to be an act of transformation. Do we have to be different because of our life in Christ? Imagine what Peter was able to stand up and say. Oh, let me tell you about myself just for a second. I'm a man of many words, but let me capsulize it just for a moment for you. I was a fisherman living for myself on the shores of Galilee, and Christ came and I met him and my personality changed, and I learned so much from his teaching, and then I blew it, I denied him, and then I went to the empty tomb with John. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then he met him, and he was alive. And then we went to the beach, and then he said, Peter, I don't think you really love me. And I had to defend myself and realize that I had failed him. And let me tell you, crowd, I am different. Three years ago, I was a worthless, selfish fisherman living for myself. I had no concept of God. And now look at me. I'm standing before 5,000 people saying, this Jesus, you just crucified. He's our Savior. There's testimony there. So here's the question. What can you and I tell people? What's one thing you can look at in your life and say, that's completely different because of Christ? Maybe your character has changed. I used to be so angry and sarcastic and bitter, and God's given me release from that. Or I used to have a filthy mouth, but God's delivered me from that. And, and I struggle once in a while. I'm still a sinner, but I'm telling you, it's not like it used to be. I don't even think about it anymore. What, what's the one thing you can say? How have your attitudes and your actions changed? How is your marriage different because of Christ? How is your parenting different because of Christ? How different is your outlook on life and death and heaven and hell? How has eternity changed for you? Do you have more joy? Is your perspective different? Are you more content? Are you exactly the same as you were before Christ? What's the thing that you can say, Christ changed that? I'm not talking an encyclopedia here. I'm not talking a biography that takes 20 minutes. I'm saying one thing. What can you look at and go, that's the thing right there. Let me tell you what's happened because of Christ. Oh, I still struggle. I still have my flaws. I still have my sins. I still have a lot of my old self. But I'm telling you, that thing, that's changed. Here's the rub of that. That one thing's really going to bug some people. Especially the people that knew you before. And they're going to let you know that it bugs them. And what's discouraging, it makes us feel alienated and weird. Actually, that should encourage us then it means that Christ actually has changed us. Because if there wasn't a transformation, the people that knew us before wouldn't be bothered by it. It's when people get irritated that you're living too differently that you're living the right way. That saddens us because we want them to know the truth 
but it should also stir us and say, I need to tell you about the truth. I need to tell you because I love you, and I need to tell you even though it's going to hurt initially, but I'm telling you, you need to hear this. What do people need to hear this morning? As you raise your kids, if they're doing something wrong, or they're doing something detrimental to their health, or or they're struggling in school because they don't get it, or they're doing socially something that will alienate them, is it good to just stand back and go, I'll figure it out. I'm not going to help them at all. Honey, you, you, you can't make any friends? You'll figure it out. You don't know how to do that math problem? Let it slide. Uh, you, you, you broke the lamp? No problem. We'll buy a new one. Target's got tons of them. Is that loving? Is that helpful for them becoming a better person? Of course not. Or is it best to go to them and say, you know, there's a problem here. And we need to talk about it, and I need to tell you the truth, and you're going to have to listen. And I'm telling you up front, you're probably not going to like it. But for you to become who you need to become, I've got to speak truth to you. See, Paul called young believers that he had led to the Lord, he called them his children in the Lord. He wasn't being patronizing. He really saw that as his role. So let me ask you this morning, who are the potential spiritual children that you can tell the truth to. Because you love them and you care about them and you can say, the gospel has changed me. Oh, church, be empowered this morning to do that. Don't be hesitant. You'll be amazed at how effective it is when you just speak truth. Third, let me conclude. There's a passion that comes from talking about the Lord. I love the word that Luke uses here. Look at it in the text. It says, Peter kept on, tell me the next word. Nobody has it. Peter kept on exhorting them. Peter kept on exhorting them. It's the Greek word. I'm going to bore you with one more Greek word, okay? You ready? One, two, three. Parakaleo. Everybody say parakaleo. Good. Parakaleo means a lot of things. It means to call to one side, like me saying, Randy, come on up here and stand next to me. It it means to admonish, to kind of say, come on now. It means to beseech. Oh, please do this. It it means to console and encourage. It'll be okay. It, It means to teach and exhort and strengthen. That's what I'm doing right now. Everything about it is positive. And the goal is to stir the spiritual heart of the person who is being exhorted to strengthen their faith. It's the same word that's used in Romans 12 too. I urge you, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. In other words, when you parakaleo somebody, you are giving them a fervent call and a challenge to trust Christ and love Christ and be like Christ. Now, not coincidentally, parakaleo is the same word that is used in Acts 14.26 to describe what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He is the paraclete. He comes alongside and he parakaleos us. He admonishes us and encourages us and consoles us and exhorts us and calls us to be a different way. 
So Peter, who is full of the Holy Spirit, passionately does what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And he calls and admonishes and begs and encourages and teaches the people, repent and be receiving, repent for your sins and receive Christ. Now, why does Peter take this approach? Why doesn't he just appeal to their needs and talk about something a little more palatable? Because I don't know about you, but accusing them of killing Jesus and then telling them they have to repent is not exactly user-friendly, is it? You killed him, and you have to turn from your sins, or you're going to hell. I mean, we talk about fire and brimstone, we don't want to do that. That's Acts 240. You killed him. You're responsible. You're in sin. You need to be saved from this. Why does he take that approach? We'll look at the end of the verse. Because there's another spiritual principle here that we don't always want to say out loud, but we deal with enough accusation of being unloving and intolerant. But look at the truth, as Peter says in verse 40. People need to be saved from the perverse generation that we live in. Now, there's no proof that Acts 2 was more perverse than 2011, but it's comparable. There's no question, though, that in 2011 that the perverseness is more pervasive. With the communication vehicles that we have and the access people have, there's no question that perverseness is more obvious now. But listen, this is not a comparison of cultures. No one this morning would deny that we live in a crass, immoral, selfish world. That means that Acts 2.40 is true now. So the question is, will we talk about it? Will we warn people about that when we call them to trust in Christ. Now, here's the interesting thing. I'm going to bore you with some English, okay? I looked up the word perverse in the thesaurus. Not the book. I went online. so much easier. I looked up the word perverse, and I expected it to mean morally nasty or spiritually corrupt or something like that, because that's usually what we think. And I found those words, aberrant, uh, deviant, wicked, those kinds of words. But I was surprised that those weren't the primary definitions of perverseness. The primary definition is much more broad. It's obstinate and stubborn and obdurate. I don't have any idea what that one means, so let's just go with obstinate and stubborn. So then I went to the dictionary, and the first meaning of perverse is to willfully determine to go counter of what is expected or desired. It wasn't until the fifth meaning that it talked about being wicked. So he says, repent and turn from this perverse generation. He's not saying it's nasty, wicked, awful. That's true. What he's saying is, you need to turn from the willful stubbornness and rebellion and rejection by selfishness of what God has done. Now, in many ways, that's an easier message. It's an easier message to say that the world is selfish and the world is stubborn because we see it all around us. In fact, some people right now are exploiting it for political or financial gain because they've realized the people that are selfish are too blind to understand that they are. I don't know if you've been following what's happening on Wall Street and now it's expanded to cities around the country. 
It's been fascinating to me, and I haven't had a lot of time to look at it, but what I have has been almost comical. There are hundreds of people that are standing in the street, and they're protesting, and they don't know why. They know they're mad, but they really don't have a clue what they're mad about. And when reporters came early in the week and said, hey, this is cool, there are 500 of you standing on Wall Street blocking traffic. What are you guys protesting? And they looked at him and said, literally, this was a quote, we're going to figure that out and let you know. Anybody else think that's funny? And they think that they're doing something noble like they did in Egypt and Libya where they took out a dictator. But these protests don't have any real purpose. It's interesting that in the last 24 hours that they've finally been given the protest message. Have you noticed this? On Tuesday, we're protesting. We're going to take down Wall Street. Why? We don't know. They actually had a chant. What do we want? We don't know. When do we want it? Now. But now, watch the news now. In the last 24 hours, all of a sudden, they're all saying the same thing. Somebody that's come, and I'm not being political, hear me this morning, I have a point from this text. Somebody that doesn't support free market capitalism has come and said, you need to say that corporations are evil, and they're not sharing enough of their money by developing products that you want to buy, and you are buying, but now you don't appreciate that they're not giving you a rebate. I saw an article last night where they interviewed eight different people on Wall Street from all walks of life, and all eight said the reason that they were there is they wanted something done to end corporate greed. I thought the most enlightening one was the goal that this one person had. He said, I want to end corporate greed, so hopefully we'll get equality. You know the way they distribute the wealth. In other words, hear me now, I'm not talking about politics or economics or anything. I'm talking about something far different. In other words, give me my share. It doesn't matter how hard I work. It doesn't matter what I do. Just distribute it all equally. It's like they think there's a truck full of money and everybody's lined up and some people are being handed more than others just arbitrarily. Now, what that tells us, here's the point, is that this is not really an economic protest and it's not really a political protest even though it's being used for political gain. What it is, look at the text, is Acts 2.40. It's a perverse generation. Instead of acting on the expectation that we will all be responsible and conscientious, this is the determination that you are entitled to get something that you don't deserve simply because you demanded it. Now here's the spiritual application. Imagine how that is going to shape the theology of churches if we let it. It already has. No wonder we don't talk about sin. No wonder we don't talk about accountability to a holy God the way we used to be. Now, if we follow that line of thinking, which is so far off it's not even funny, now theology will become self-centered. Now you'll hear the phrase, well, God owes me heaven. And just so it's fair, he owes everybody heaven, no matter what they do. We've already seen that, haven't we? All roads lead to heaven. Doesn't matter what you do, how you live. God's going to just accept everybody. 
because he wouldn't be loving if he sent anybody to hell. Well, you've rejected him and spit on him. Doesn't matter. He should take you. That's the mindset that's driving these protests. And that's what Peter's talking about. You need to turn from this perverse generation, this generation that just wants everything for itself. So how, church, how, Christian, do we minister to that generation? Very simply, let's end. We're supposed to solemnly testify and keep on exhorting them. In the same way we want the Holy Spirit to minister to us with a mix of conviction and encouragement, that's the approach we need to take to others. And we have to keep the focus on Jesus Christ. Sixteen times in his sermon, Peter references Christ. There is no question who he is calling them to believe in. Let's finish. Look at the response, verse 41. So then those who received the word were baptized. Imagine that service. And that day there were added 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. In one day, 3,000 people get saved and they're publicly baptized to affirm their faith in Christ. Now, don't forget, the, the political and religious atmosphere in Jerusalem was still very raw. And opposition from Roman and Jewish leaders was very strong. So strong that in two chapters, Peter and John are going to be arrested, beaten, and threatened with their lives. So confessing Christ openly at this point is not safe. It's not something people are going to do just because they're caught up in the moment. Hey, this is great. we got a flash mob. Let's all receive Christ. That's not this. This is genuine conviction. And their commitment to their faith was consistent. Look at verse 42. We're going to study it next week as we talk about the ideal church. It isn't just that the 120 are devoting themselves to teaching and fellowship and eating and prayer. All 3,000 are doing it. Talk about church growth. How do you deal with that? You go from 120 members to 3,000. That'll give you a headache. What a good problem to have, right? All of a sudden, the church is birthed. Why? Because people are hungry for the word of God. And they want to be together with the body. And when they get there, they said to themselves, let's call on the Lord. Wednesday night, forget to mention the announcements. Wednesday night, we're going to do all three of those things. We're going to gather for prayer meeting. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to study the word of God. And we're going to gather together as a body. And we're going to call on the Lord. That's Acts 2.42. What's better than that? What, what's more desirable than that? What, what's your hunger this morning? What's your, what's your commitment? I'm not talking about prayer meeting. I'm talking about to the Lord. Are you pierced in your heart by the word of God? Are you constantly as a believer convicted of sin? And have you totally turned from it? Or are you still just, just a little bit? Just stuff it in my pocket. Just, just let me hold on to that one, Paul. Come on. It's, it's okay. God will forgive me. He's a God of mercy. Repentance means oh, I can't stand it. Get it away from me. Are you willing to take a stand even if it's sober and direct 
and people are irritated that your conviction is strong? Are you passionate about Christ, willing to exhort others? Oh, would you love him? Oh, would you serve him? And you know what? So you don't feel like you're alone. Let me model it for you so you'll be encouraged and strengthened. That's what it means to be part of the body. That's what it means to follow Christ. And I pray that the Lord will help us as we do that. And if we're struggling with it, that you'll show up Wednesday night and we'll call in the name of the Lord. In fact, we'll surround you and pray for you. If you want to say to us, I, I need somebody to pray for me so I'll be strong in the Lord. We'll pray for you. We'll surround you and pray for you. But let's not fall back. Let's not be weak. Let's not let our conviction be soft at this point. Because he's wonderful, isn't he? His mercy and forgiveness, oh, it's changed our lives. We need to tell people about it. We need to show them that Christ is sufficient to take away all our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we praise you for your mercy and your forgiveness and your love. Where would we be without it? Father, give us a fervency in our hearts to stand for you and to love you. You have changed us and you have transformed us. And we're so grateful. We love you so much because of what you've done. Father, I pray for anybody here this morning that does not know you as their Savior, that today you would break open their heart and convict them of the sin that easily besets every one of us. We're all sinners. We all fall short of you. We're not even close to the finish line. We're so far back, and yet you reach back to us and pull us toward yourself through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray if there's someone here that does not know you and is not trusting you, that right now they give their life to you turn away from their sin and know that salvation and redemption is possible that there is a true hope in Christ and Lord for those that are struggling this morning in their walk to stand for you and to speak your name Father fill us with courage it's a difficult perverse generation that we serve but Lord, it's no much, uh, no more perverse than it was in Acts 2. And Peter, the one who failed so often, and the one who was impulsive and said the wrong thing, he stood up and said, you need to know Jesus Christ. So Lord, give us that boldness and that strength, we pray. We thank you and praise you for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you for what you're doing in this church. Lord, use us in a powerful way. We pray for the 23rd, Lord, that you would bring many people that night who do not know you, that they would hear the hope of Christ. Give us boldness as we invite people to come, Lord. May they respond favorably. Lord, we thank you and praise you for what you've done. Now we continue to worship you and exalt you. Pray in Jesus' name.